Welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. (laughs) For real. We can do better, people. All right. Let's start unpacking. Hi, Miranda. Hey, Noelle. This is, is this how we start it our is. episode? It's because... Hi, hey. <laughs> sometimes you start, sometimes I do, but it's like pretty much the same thing every time. Right? <laughs> As if we haven't been together for the past I couple know. of hours. Yeah. Um, but no, has, it's Martin Luther King Day actually today, mm-hmm. so um, happy Martin Luther yes. King Yes, what Day. documentary are you watching? Um, it was called King. It's like three okay. hours long, yeah. but it's all like raw footage mm-hmm. um, of, of everything, and some of it's kind of hard to hear because of the quality yeah. so they'll they subtitle everything okay. um but kind of like bringing light to the fact that he was really fighting for and you know I think that's another part of history that's been whitewashed yeah. in terms of um, what he's you know yeah. he's been fighting for and I think it did a really good job of showing um I don't know how to put it like well I mean it related to like the post for the fact that he's just not he wasn't like he's portrayed this so yeah exactly and, yeah I mean like he was pretty firm and the fact that yeah. like yeah you know how they were being treated was mm-hmm. wrong and what we should be fighting for yeah. and that we should like all the boycotts mm-hmm. um yeah he was against like violence and responding well, right, yeah. With, yeah you know responding to the violence that was coming on to them with violence mm-hmm. but um like I think they just did a really good job of yeah. Of showing everything yeah. behind the scenes. Well, I think so many people relate um, like activism to protest, right, you know? right, right. And I'm like, or even just protest to violence, and like protest doesn't have to be violent. Mm-hmm. I think he was such a disruptor. Yeah, right. That's a know? good way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. So, so yeah. All right. Well, I'm super excited for our guest. Um, we have the amazing Isaac Edder joining us. He's an activist, a social entrepreneur, and a transracial adoptee um, from the age of two. So we're going to be getting really into identity. So we have him here with us. He's also the founder of Identity, um, which is a startup focused on providing accessible, diverse, and ethical adoption and foster care education. Formerly, Isaac worked in adoption through his consulting firm, Edder Consulting, where he led trainings for families and adoption agencies on transracial adoption. He also co-founded an education and advocacy organization, Safe House Lancaster, where he was the co-executive director. He's used his story of being adopted and growing up in a white world to curate deep conversations about race in America. And with his unique insight on racial tensions between white and black communities, he's been able to curate impactful conversations for families where everyone learns to value each other and their experience while learning about systemic racism, privilege, and their role in it. So hopefully I did a great job um, summarizing all the amazing things you've done, Isaac. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great today. Yeah, it's MLK Day. Um, it's a little bit snowy here. I'm sure it's not for you guys. Um, but yeah, it's chill. I'm trying to stay out of the cold. Yeah, it sure. is a chilly 65 degrees in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> I'm, and I'm freezing, and I'm freezing. Like, when I came into, I was like, "It's freezing here." She had the the slider open. She had to put the heat on. I'm like, "I can't." So okay. <laughs> I would love to be in that. One. Yeah, most people would. I know we're kind of spoiled. We are. Um, so Isaac, can you just share a little bit more about your personal journey and really how adoption has impacted your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was adopted when I was two by a white family, and. Growing up, you know, I just didn't grow up around any people of color. And so 
my racial identity was always a question, you know. Um, I never really had any way to look up and see a version of myself. You know, most of us, we go through life and we see versions of ourselves out in the world. That was never really my experience. So there was always questions about, like, what I was going to be like as an adult. Like, sometimes even still, like, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I, I wouldn't have guessed this. Like, I just, you know, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed that I would look like this. Not even from, like, an attractive or unattractive standpoint, just from, like, from, like literally just straight not having any recognition of how I would look as an adult. Um, and so those were a lot of, like, my early struggles, which is, like, really a lot of confusion around, like, who I am, who I'm going to be. Um, and so I had a couple, I had a rough start through this journey. Um, but it was really in that, those years of college where I, one, started learning more about um, racism and, and the effects in society, like systematic racism. But also I was experiencing racism for the first time, so I was getting this kind of, like, I guess you might call lived experience of racism and like actually being a black person that isn't um, shielded by whiteness. Um, and that just really changed my life. It didn't only just change my life um, in terms of like knowledge, but the impact of experiencing racism for the first time really sent me into a crisis. Um, as you know, as it does a lot of black people to experience um, blatant racism. But I think for me, the reason that it was extremely, extremely hard was that for most of my life, white people had essentially been my face for me, right? I didn't know black people, so I was actually more uncomfortable around black people. But then I go to college, and the white people are saying, <laughs> you know, mean things to me based on my skin tone. I'm having all these, like, weird instances in class where, like, I'm having to speak to black people. And, you know, I barely know black people at this point in my life. And so there was just, it was just so much hitting me all at once. Um, not to mention that, like, my family didn't really understand what I was going through. And so, you know, I just ended up dropping out and moving to Georgia and starting a new life. Um, but it was really when I got back to Lancaster that I started building nonprofits and I wanted to see impact happen and I wanted to kind of start movements. Um, so the first thing I built was called Lancaster Together. It was a nonprofit that was focused on helping students connect uh, with nonprofits and know where to volunteer. Um, one of the events we did was on foster care and adoption. And uh, from that event, like that I spoke, I actually ended up speaking at that event just for a little bit, just telling a little bit of my story. Um, both of the agencies that sponsored the event, they actually asked me to keep coming and keep leading training. And so that that just kind of started happening. And I every month I was leading this cultural training for an adopted agency. And then one day she just kind of pulled me aside and she was like, you know, why don't you just think about doing this? Like, I don't know what you're doing, but you should just do this. Um, and I wasn't at a position where, like, I had too much stake in anything, you know. So I was just like, you know what, whatever, I'm just going to do this. Um, and that's how kind of Edder Consulting started. Um, and uh, I built Edder Consulting to help families understand the best practices for transracial adoption. Um, and, I, and it would be four years this year. Um, this would be the fourth year um, if I hadn't started identity. And so it was like about three and a half really strong years of doing trainings across the country, uh, meeting with families. Um, and I love that work. And I think it's really important. But it was really while doing that work that I realized that um, there were bigger issues in adoption. And so we started Identity to help provide more accessible education to families and also provide them with ongoing support. And so that's really the work that I do now. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love like when we hear stories about how people take their own personal experiences and even if it's been difficult and there's been trauma, um, you know, and turning it into something that's really um, productive and fulfilling. So I think it's awesome um, what you've done. 
we've talked on previous episodes about different um, like racial identity development models, and you've started talking a little bit about it in terms of you know your own sense of racial identity and sense of self, and how being um, involved in transracial adoption affected that. You know, in some um, previous episodes, Miranda, I think you've mentioned you're also an adoptee. So I'm just curious a little bit more. And like you briefly mentioned, you know, growing up kind of having a white identity, it sounds like maybe. Um, so I'm just curious about that, how you, you know, feel like that developed over your childhood and maybe at different times throughout, like as you entered adolescence and like different critical periods during your life. Um, and same for you, Miranda, like just how that um, has happened for you all being adoptees. Just like how it's formed our identity. Yeah. Um, I'll go. Um, I think, you know, I, so I was adopted when I was very young. I was days old, like two weeks old. You know, my birth parents, my mother specifically wanted a family that more or less matched racially. So like there were some criteria that she was looking for in a family. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted a family that was black and Latin, right? I'm black, Mexican, Portuguese. My adopted family, my mother's black and my father was Puerto Rican. Um, now, my parents are also light-skinned, mm -hmm. right? So I'm the darkest one in my family. My mother doesn't really have a lot of family. Um, so my extended family is pretty much my Puerto Rican family. So if you see photos of me and with my family, I'm the darkest one. They all speak Spanish, kind of all of this, right? Um, so, so growing up, the only question I ever had was, who do I look like? Mm. Like, I grew up for a very long time with that. That was the only thing I ever wondered about. You know, I, you know, Isaac, you were kind of talking about some other things like, what well, I grew up to be like, you know, these other questions. I never really had that mm -hmm. because I also have a younger sister who's not adopted. Right. So like there's kind of this like who looks like me? My sister looks like my parents mm -hmm. and I don't look like anybody. And do I look like my family? Um, and so I actually found my parents when I was in college. Mm -hmm. um, I was having I was having health issues um, and all the doctors are always like, what's your health history? What's your health history? I don't know it, you know, at a certain point I'm starting to get frustrated, right? I'm like, can you just help me? I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, so I found, I had some paperwork. Um, I, I honestly did a Google search. Apparently I'm an FBI agent <laughs> and, um, you know, I found my birth parents. And so what was so interesting is that I then met them and was like, my mother looks like a white woman. Oh, okay. I mean, she's, She's Portuguese, you yeah. know, she's Portuguese, Mexican, she's lighter, she's super light, freckles, straight brown hair. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I look lit, but our faces look the same, right? Okay. And then my father, black, very dark skin. Um, so just really, it also kind of like I had this question and then it's like I had the answer, but it wasn't what I thought it would be. Mm. So then these questions of identity weren't ever really answered, you know? Um, so I think, and then, you know, once I met them, we had a relationship for a while, but, you know. That was kind of it. And so I think for me, I grew up around um, around a lot of diversity, I'd say. But um, similarly, like knowing blackness, like being part of the culture, I think my mom tried. But it just being her and not being really exposed to that many other black people. Like we had a couple of family friends. I had a couple of friends growing mm -hmm. up. Um, but I did. And I still do, you know, some of that, like feeling uncomfortable in groups of all black people. I'm like, people are going to know I'm a fraud, you know? Mm. And so I would say, I will say now I've been doing a lot more work around identity and figuring that piece of me out, mm -hmm. you know? Actually, it's really how we came to Isaac, right? I was on right. TikTok. I was like, oh, wow, his story resonates with me, you know? So, so yeah, very similar in that way. But what about you? For me, it was, it was no, no mirrors, no diversity for so much of my life that, um, 
identity for me around race just was kind of a big blank. Um, and so, you know, I spent a couple of years, I mean, a lot of my time in Georgia was just spent around just like becoming okay with um, being different and being a black person with my experience, right? I think one of the hardest parts about being a transverse to adoptee with an all-white environment, like another difficult thing is like, and being in black community and not seeing yourself as a fraud. And so, like, I had to like just dive into not feeling like that and accepting Accepting my own blackness, in a sense, as weird as that sounds, um, it's like, I may consciously, like, be like, oh, I'm black, but as soon as I got around people, black people, I literally didn't feel black. And so I had to figure out how to get those two together and be in black community and realize that just because my experience may have been white, it doesn't negate my experience as a black person either. Because as soon as I became an adult, like, as soon as I left that white bubble that was created for me, I immediately started experiencing racism. And, like, when a cop pulls me over, like, they don't know my parents are white. And so, like, I'm still living as a black person. But I I think for a lot of adoptees, it's just so hard for us to feel like it. Um, And so that was a lot of my, like, early days. A lot of my early work internally was just accepting myself as a black person. And accepting that, you know, no matter what other black people thought about me, I was black. Um, And then it also just becomes uh, an internal thing with yourself. Led me to giving back and trying to create a better world um, for those children who are currently experiencing um, that dilemma, and hopefully guiding their parents towards giving them a better outcome than I had. Well, and I think you know earlier you had mentioned something around you know the black experience is is so vast, you know, and I think this idea that we really have to remember is, you know, we've been inundated with these ideas that black people, black culture looks one way or looks this way. And it's also not that, you know, the black diaspora is so vast, you know, people speak differently, they're from different places, they have different experiences um, and that shouldn't be negated or dwindled down to, you know, black people speak this way, dress this way, are from this area, you know, like go to these types of schools. I'm like, we do all the things everybody else does too, you know? Um, And so, and because of that, right, we fit right in to that vastness you know um, yeah we are a part of it, you know black is black people are yes. diverse in and of yeah. themselves yeah. that is something that isn't taught to most people mm-hmm. and so you know adoptees fall into yeah. that mix of getting the wrong stereotype and getting the wrong mm-hmm. message and if it is it's like all races aren't just one mm-hmm. thing so i think it just really sets translational adoptees up at a disadvantage mm-hmm. uh not having parents that expose them to the yeah. world, and especially the people that look like them that come from all different mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so transracial adoption, right, it has this complex history in this country, which you know we, isn't really surprising when we think about how systemic racism impacts so many aspects of society. Uh, prior to the 1950s, transracial adoption was extremely rare and in many states illegal. Uh, adoption agencies also recommended race matching, so white people adopting white children, black folks adopting black children, um, for a period of time, which we also know the children of color tend to wait in foster care longer than their white peers, which is why the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, MEPA or MEPA, I'm not sure, um, was enacted in 1994. Uh, yeah, we had looked up you know, we always try to like do research before, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I'm not an adoptee. We, we talked about on this episode really being like close to your heart. Right. And like, 
um, a reflection of you. And so um, it was interesting. I obviously I work with children in foster care and I, I work with um, transracial adoptees and like I experience it from that lens, but never from like a lens of like really looking at it through identity development um, and kind of the experience of what that would be transracially. Um, but in the research of, of looking through that, they they assessed the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act um, over like the past 25 years. And they had found that the proportion of adoptions um, that were transracial increased at a rate that exceeded the increase in overall adoption. So we're seeing the, you know, the rise in adoption in general, which like is a good thing, right? I mean, we don't want children sitting in foster care and not being adopted either. Um, but the, the data really shows that the proportion of children adopted transracially, it increased from 23% to 28% overall, um, and from 21% to 33% for Black children specifically. Mm. So of these transracial adoptions, um, interestingly, 90% involved children of color adopted by parents of a different race. I know we like had the um, conversation because like, it mostly white parents that are yeah. adopting children of color. Um you know, and so given how much more common it is in the past decade or so, I mean, there is that that history that we know. Um, what do you say to the people who challenge it? Like, you know, who say that it's not you you had talked about it being there being somewhat of a disadvantage um, for the children. And there is that complex history. So can it work in a child's best interest to be adopted transracially? Um, you know, there are. A limited amount of black families to be able to adopt black children in foster care so there's like this balance right mm -hmm. like we want them to be adopted but then can it set them up for disadvantage so what are your thoughts about that yeah i think the the first question and, and it's i think we you almost work down to that question which is like the first question is like is our child welfare system the best place for children right and so if we ask that question and we, and we look at our child welfare history and we look at the child welfare system, we know the answer is no. Like, being placed into the system is one form of trauma already. And so we know these children are already coming with a set of challenges um, already facing their identity. Um, and so the answer is like, no and yes, I guess. that's. I know that's complicated, but I think it's probably more so no than anything because the, the system isn't set up in the children's best because right now it's best suited to agencies and people who um, are profiting from it. Um, as we look at these things and, and black children going into more white homes and, and all these statistics that are happening, I think alongside of them, we should be looking at building nonprofits and businesses that help support that and those being positive experiences for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of those things that we always talk about in here. We talk about intersectionality a lot. And it's like we already have these systems that suck and that don't work when you don't have racism involved in yeah. it. And then you layer that on top of something that's already shitty. Yeah. And it just exacerbates all the problems. Like you said, I mean, you know, there can be, um, you know, a white family that adopts a white child and the adoption system has, you know, like you said, is riddled with problems foster care, shelters, like all of that already exists, um, even if you're a white child experiencing mm -hmm. that. So then layer on being a child of color, um, having to navigate all of that and dealing with parents if you are <laughs> adopted then or put in foster care, parents that don't understand um, or don't expose or don't do the work, you know, like you said, and it just exacerbates any of those issues. So um, it's a really good point. 
yeah, we often talk about how like systems can't be good if we let people get away with bad things. Like we can take the George Floyd example, right? Like the argument wasn't um, was what happened to George Floyd wrong or right. The argument became is policing good or bad? And the narrative was that how can the policing system be good if we let people get away with bad things that the system has provided us? Um, and so I think in child welfare, we just need more people who are building really new um, and really um, important and impactful um, nonprofits and companies that challenge the status quo of, of child welfare. Um, and I have some wonderful friends that are doing this work, and it's beautiful to see. And this also goes along with uh, family preservation, right? Like, the first step to child welfare is actually making sure that families can stay together. Uh, the second step becomes foster care and adoption. And so we have to really reorganize how the system is flowing and operating before we can really get down to whether family placements are good or bad. Uh, because, again, gamble. It's a gamble effect. Um, is it good? Is it a good placement if a birth mother is coerced into giving away her parental rights, but the adoptive family is really great? And so, like, there, there's so many nuanced situations in here that I feel like we have to get down to, um, and that makes questions that are great like that really hard to answer because I want to say yes, but at the same time, kind of like the example I just gave, it might not be. I always, uh, I always appreciate the question that causes us to have more questions, right? <laughs> you know, um, because if we're really thinking of a system, you know, as a whole, there's so much to undo, you know? I mean, really, I think we talk about that a lot. There's yeah. so much undoing. You talk about racism. It's not a singular experience. There's just so much to it. It's multifaceted. It's nuanced, you know? But I think, you know, all of that will take years, you know, the creation of organizations and this additional support, <clears throat> but one of the things that we can do or that, you know, your company does is provide support um, to transracial adoptee parents, right? So um, tell me, what do you think is most important for parents to consider when raising children who look different from them? Yeah, I think uh, the most important thing is to uh, assess your own biases and your own experience, right? Um, and so I think in order for transracial adoptive parents to be good parents, um, they have to really be bought into being allies on all fronts, right? They have to really be bought into doing their own work and addressing their own biases. And and that can look like assessing like your community, right? Um, church is a really good example because the majority of people who adopt are Christian. And so like, what church do you go to? And does that church have any people of color? That There's a great assessment of where you stand. Um, right, it, it gives you a clear picture of like, should you be bringing a black child into this home if you literally know no other black people? Is this going to be your first black? Are you really capable to be a great transracial adoptive parent? That's a great first step, I think, for adopting. I personally would rather if you know that you're just not that's not the life for you, like you're you're not Black Lives Matter, like just adopt white children and call it a day. Focus on what you know. Um, no shame in the game really, not for me personally, and maybe other adoptees have different experiences or viewpoints of that, but I, I, I just think it's true. Like, if you can't handle the race component of adoption, just just don't do it. Um, there, there's nobody, I'm not going to shame you about it, at least, and I don't think anybody should shame you about it, because the, the, the worst thing that we need in, in the adoption world is for children that have already experienced a set of trauma to experience a whole new set of trauma 
trauma because their adoptive parents refuse to accept their racial identity, which does happen. I have friends that don't talk to their adoptive parents because they are literally anti-Black Lives Matter and will be blatantly racist. And that's a traumatizing experience for even an adult adoptee. Um, and so, you know, that's, I guess, my viewpoint on it. Start with what you know. Like, start with your community. Start with where you're from, you know, who you, who you know. Um, and then go from there. And I think some of the second layer questions are like, how is my family going to react to a black child? Is my family going to be brought into this process? You know, my extended family really wasn't at first. I didn't grow up around an extended family that even understood when I started talking about this. It took years for my extended family to really get on the same page. And mainly George Floyd. Like a lot of the George Floyd instance really woke up a lot of my extended family. And so, like, those are some questions that I think parents should be asking themselves that they don't have to think about biological children or single children. Uh, so I just think those are, are some of the questions that don't get asked enough. And I think they're getting asked more, and I think people are doing deeper thoughts about transracial adoption. But you have to know yourself well enough to know that is your home really the safest place for a black adult? Um, and that question hasn't been asked historically. And I'm hoping that it gets asked more. I, I work with some agencies that um, have a lot um, stricter of a process for transracial adoption who actually, like, their home study process is a lot more involved. They do questionnaires and trainings that really assess whether a family should be um, able to transracially adopt. And I think that's really, really important. Um, there hasn't been enough studies about this yet. I know there's not official studies. But I think as um, more studies come out and more people do research on it, we will find that there is a serious um, mental and traumatic experience that black transracial adoptees go through or any any other race in a white family that is racist. Like I think it, it really we see it on social media and like in in theory we understand it. I think in the next like ten years we'll see actual research that shows how traumatic of an experience that was. That was one of the worst experiences of my life. Like I will never fully recover from having my family not understand why um, Black Lives Matter or why they're voting for Trump or why I need to post about um, a police-like murder. Like, I'll never fully get over that pain and that experience and that feeling of rejection because it was compiled on top of the feelings of rejection I have from my birth mother and my birth father and all these other things. So I think that um, we're still underselling the importance of parents really being prepared and understanding this. Um, and I'm hoping that in the next couple of years we actually see data that supports this a lot more um, so that everybody can get bought into the fact that this is serious work and it's, and it's serious for children. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Um, one of the things that we always like to end with is we like to ask, um, like, are there any people you, you referenced before, you have some friends out there doing amazing work in this area, um, if there's any agencies that are really forward thinking or more progressive um, or follow some of the recommendations of Edder Consulting. So can you just let our listeners know um, how they can support um, or if people are looking to adopt or if there's resources for adoptees that have experienced what you've experienced, um, just some resources for our listeners. Yeah, for adoptees, one resource that I recently came into was called Intercountry Adoptee Voices um, run by Linnell. Um, that has one for internet. It's a lot for international adoptees, but it has a lot of domestic resources as well and a big community surrounded it. It's great for adoptees. Um, actually, in Florida, there's an agency called Adoption Authority that I've worked pretty close with. 
they're fantastic. They do a great home study process, and they, they are, they've told me they very often tell people no to Netflix adoption, um, which is great. Um, and so really big fan of them. Um, obviously, identity. So at identity, like we have a learning community for adoptive and foster families where they can get access to webinars, tutorials, and other resources. Um, and also being community, so like families, I'd love for families to join that. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, in terms of other resources that people can look at, um, Instagram is a great uh, place for this. Like Hannah J. Matthews is on Instagram or Redeem Therapy, or sorry, it's Therapy Redeem, by the way. Um, there's a therapist that's also an adoptee. But these are some great resources to start doing like just a little bit of research um, around maybe what the psychology or the experience of adoptees is. Um, to let you know, like, is this something, a journey that I want to mm-hmm. Well, thank you so yeah. much. Um, like you said, Miranda, it's like questions that lead to more questions. And I'm like, now this could be like 20 more episodes of things that we need to cover. Um, but we appreciate it. You know, thank you for, for sharing your experience. Um, you know, it was probably painful and, you know, like you said, the trauma, traumatizing. Um, but being vulnerable with us here today and sharing that, we really do appreciate it. Uh, I think stories are really powerful ways to build empathy and also expand knowledge for people. Um, and so we just um, are really thankful for you being here with us today um, and also sharing the resources and the work that you're doing at Identity. So, Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Happy to be here. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, listeners, we really only have, I think, like another episode left before we uh, hop on break. But we uh, thank you so much for for having you with us throughout all these episodes over the past few months. Um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks and then we'll see you back. After <laughs> that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Right, bye. Show the Unpack Project some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. You can also check us out on Instagram at the underscore Unpack Project. And if you enjoyed today's episode, visit our website at theunpackedproject.com, where you can make a donation that supports the research, production, and operating costs of this work. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. See you next week. Peace. <laughs>